Hey there, it's Erica, and you're listening to Better Product. We're the show that celebrates great digital products and the people and processes that make them stronger. When does a person's ego matter in product? Depending on how you think about it, ego can emerge as a strength or as a weakness. For example, if you're an early stage founder, you might need to own the ego a little bit to get people bought into your vision. But as you scale, you have to balance your perspective with those that will challenge you for the good of the product. Today, we're exploring all of this and more to figure out how exactly does ego shape products? When can it help us? And when can it harm us? And we're using a hot topic to find the answers. Elon Musk's Twitter purchase and the many debates that surround it. Good afternoon. Hello, Hello and welcome back. Hello. Hi. Welcome back where? Good to the point. office or to the show? To the show. But I, I guess, did we mention that I'm like in another room now? I don't think we did. You are in the wellness slash therapy yeah, room. Yeah. So it makes sense because you are like Megan and I's product therapist right now. Product therapist. That's true. Yeah. Huh, that's that's an interesting job title. This is the first podcast I will record in my 40s. It is. So, yes. Yeah. How how was your trip by the way? I went to Austin um, yeah. and it was super hot, which was perfect because all I wanted to do was sit around by the pool and eat. I knew I could eat a lot, but I ate more. I surprised myself by how much I ate. So, it was great. That's what vacations are for. Did you Yeah. Did you push yourself to like try something really weird while you were there or was it just comfortable um, the whole time? I don't really have to put, I, I, I seek it out. I'm just, I like to try different stuff. I don't really eat beef, so I stay away from that if I can, but pretty much I just, I'll eat whatever, I think. I don't know. I haven't, I haven't considered what I eat like insects or like snake. I've never had to deal with that choice, but. Pretty much everything else I'm down for. So I've been offered insect before. I said no. Yeah, I, have, I don't know. I have consumed an insect actually. What insect was it? And was it on purpose? It was on purpose. It was given to me by my dad's friend and it was like a cricket mm. co- was covered. It fried? Yeah, oh, it was like fried. No, it was in like um I guess the closest comparison is tahine, like a spicy like chili powder. Um, and it was just on a little stick, so you just how was it? Crunchy, tastes like chicken. Bland, <laughs> did not taste like chicken. Um, <laughs> it was pretty tasteless except for the chili powder. Like that's what was holding it up. So, like I, I can do it if I have to survive. I think that's why they but... make them. So just so you can like get yourself ready, so that if you ever are like stranded in the desert, you can be like, I did eat a cricket, so I could do it. I can do. That. I could do it again. I know. They serve crickets at Verde, which is a like a local Mexican chain. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've thought about getting them there. No, grasshopper, not cricket. Grass, yeah. Not like like what I know the difference. I have no idea. Grasshoppers are I a little no bigger. Clue. Yeah. Yeah. Can I interrupt really quick? I'm going to tap out of this convo. Can you yeah. interrupt on this conversation? I guess. Get into your icebreaker. <laughs> if we dare. Well, we have an icebreaker today that actually asks us to imagine what it's like to be filthy rich. So we're going to explain more like why we're on this track. So the question is, if you had all the money in the world, 
what company would you offer to buy? And after that, what would you do with it? Wow. I have a, a selfish answer and a less selfish answer. So my first selfish answer would be, I don't know exactly what company, but it would be a clothing company for whatever clothes I like most or I wear most. And that way I get them all for free. And then if I ever saw trends that were going in a certain direction and I was like, I want my company to start producing those clothes, I could do it. Um, so that's one, but that one's not as interesting for this conversation. The second idea I had was Long John Silver's. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because, because I do think that there is a gap in the market for fast seafood or fast casual seafood. Erica's like laughing at me right now. Um, because it sounds gross. Nobody wants fast seafood or fast casual seafood. Think of the market share that McDonald's has is billions of people. Think about the fraction of that that order the fish filet. Like that's those are the only customers of Long John Silver's or the only potential customers. It's not that many. But I do think that there should be less gross, fast seafood options available for people. And I would help them undergo a rebrand and maybe supply chain reconfiguring to make things less gross mm. in order to gain more market share. And I like their hush puppies. I love uh, that's what I was about to say. I'm like, bring back the hush puppies. There's this uh, there was a Long John Silver's right by us for years and they just converted it into like this bougie, healthy smoothie cafe thing. And I feel like when I walk in, I can still smell the hush puppies. It's very evocative. <laughs> That's kind of um, gross. It's kind of gross. Yeah, but memories, right? Yeah. yeah. yeah I like a I, good rehab project. So <laughs> I I think you're right. I think there is seafood missing. Cause I I don't know where a Long John Silver's is, but I know they're still around, but I couldn't actually tell you where one is right now. Huh. Uh, well, I guess for me, I because I'm filthy rich, which I don't like you using a negative adjective. We just hear us rich people just like to call it wealthy. But, you know, I'll, I'll ignore that. Um, if I That's was the new money talking, <laughs> right, I'm going to let that go because I'm above it because I'm so wealthy. <laughs> I would buy Peloton and make them a full on product company because I think they're a little bit confused right now. So that's really what I would buy. And this comes on the heels of just getting an email of more Peloton apparel. And I'm like, what are you doing? This is not what your email campaign should be about. Like, it's cool. I bought a Peloton mom's shirt for my wife as a joke for Mother's Day. But like, I'm not actually going to buy Peloton gear. Like, come on, let's uh, let's do something digital. You know, I didn't even know they had clothes. How long is that? Right, exactly. Thing? Why would you know that? Doesn't Panera you never... has clothes too. Panera does. They have swimsuits, right? Yeah, covered yeah. in mac and cheese. <laughs> I, I don't need the Panera swimsuit for that to happen. Um, so... <laughs> <laughs> wow. I'm I'm like I'm wired right now, and well, I like this. That was a yeah. that was a really next level <laughs> joke right there. Erica's in a mood today. She has I to give a roast to this evening. Or I'm literally going to puke when I go to do this tonight. I don't want to. Just Who get a bunch of Panera mac and cheese. They'll yeah. calm me down. <laughs> think of everyone covered. Yeah, think of everyone covered with a with their Wearing swimsuit Panera on with swimsuits. mac and cheese. <laughs> Man, we're all in a mood today. But Christian's in a very specific mood because he's trying to get you to guess what this episode's actually about. So Erica. I'll hand it to you. 
So, okay, thought experiment over. We've imagined being filthy rich or wealthy, excuse me. Now we're thinking more about the people who are rich, specifically mm. the richest man. Too. Say that again. They need love too. They need love too. Oh yeah. Mm. I'm not disputing that they don't need love. No, I'm um, saying this is good. It's good. It's good. We need to talk about the wealthy people more. So it's good. We're covering them. <laughs> I, I'm not sure about this one because this gentleman is the most rich man in the world, Mr. Elon Musk. Um, is he really? Yes. I mm. Unless the coverage is wrong. So I was reading the articles today and it said he's the richest person in the world. Okay, good. Or I only Bezos. want to talk about the richest. No second place on this show. <laughs> Um, we're talking about the richest person in the Mm -hmm. world, Elon Musk. I will fact check that after this episode, just to be clear. But if he's not the richest, he is definitely one of the richest men to exist. CEO of Tesla. And as of recently, a person who is buying Twitter, the social media platform. And I really like the emphasis you put on those two T's. Twitter. Twitter. Yeah, me too. And Twitter being the very impactful digital product that it is, we have some thoughts about it. You know, we imagine most of you in the audience have at least heard of this news, might even be following it like we are. But we, and specifically Christian, who inspire this episode, have a pretty distinct product perspective on what's happening here that we think is interesting. So I guess, Christian, we should start with you just to set that context. What's What stood out to you as this news broke about Elon buying Twitter And how did you get to this product perspective on it? So when I started thinking about it, it was like before it went down and it was like, yeah, whatever, he's not actually going to buy it. And so my first take was like, man, a lot of this sounds a lot like Trump, but people don't really realize that you have somebody who's wanting to bring free speech back on a social platform. And it's coming from somebody who doesn't really have the strongest grasp of social interaction. It's like, wow, there's really no difference between what Musk is saying, what Trump was saying, but that didn't really seem to fly with with a lot of people. But I still feel that way in the beginning. But then I think, I don't know, a couple of weeks after that, it like started going down that he was going to buy it, connecting it away from like the hot take world and into product world. There's like two threads that like converge in my mind. One, I guess before this, I would say I was really starting to become impressed by the things Twitter was trying to do. So Little things like linking to NFTs for your user profile. I know it's like totally silly, but like it was all rooted in trying to do new things and that were blockchain oriented when they sort of folded under block, you know, with Square and all those things. And so that seemed, you know, interesting. And so I subscribed to their monthly. I think it's only like $2.99 a month just so I could do that to see. And then there's like ad-free links that you can click through Twitter feed, which is actually pretty convenient because like a lot of the basketball blogs that I follow, they always have like these horrible ads that, you know, the overlay when you click on the article. But if you click on them through Twitter blue, they don't. And you just get a, a like an unfettered like, right. article or whatever. It was great. So I was really starting to become impressed by what Twitter was doing. They were like kind of picking themselves back up after kind of struggling for a few years. And then when this happened, I was like, man, that sucks because they were just starting to what I felt like, like truly productize. So there's that one thread. But then when I really started thinking about the product side, where it connected was when Elon started, you know, you know, tweeting and I think he was even making polls 
that were like feature ideas, like editing posts and things like that. That's where I started thinking about the role of ego and product. It was really easy to watch a lot of the the fans like be like, yeah, totally. He's so right. But I was just like, I don't love this whole loudest voice, like highest paid person coming in and creating this change when there was this like big change that was already happening. So that's when I started thinking about what is the role of someone's ego when it comes to a building product? And there's positive sides to that, but I'll, I'll right. pause before getting to that part. Yeah. Thank you. Megan, any reactions of your own to that news as it came out? I know Christian gave us you know, the context for the conversation, but I don't know. Did, did this surprise you? Were there any observations of your own that you'd like to share? My first reaction was, there goes Elon again. And uh, <laughs> my second reaction was probably that he was going to delete all of the tweets making fun of his children's names. And my third reaction was similar to Christian's about product, which was especially when I saw the tweets about, you know, him putting those polls out there and promising feature changes willy-nilly. I was thinking, like, who knows what on earth is going to happen to Twitter when he officially takes over if he's doing that before papers haven't even been signed. I don't use Twitter often. I'm not, you know, using the paid features like Christian is. So I wasn't as familiar with those, but my thought was going to be, like, what is the implication for product? Yeah, and and this idea of like the loudest voice in the room, not necessarily being the right person to lead the charge for all these changes, especially on a platform that impacts as many people as Twitter is really important. So thank you both for your observations there. Um, Actually free of a lot of hot takes, which is awesome. So as Christian mentioned, the big well, thing that- I have one hot take. You do? Okay, go for it. If you're searching for one and you can figure out where you're going to edit yeah. it out. Fire away. I find it very frustrating that two of the largest social networks- are run by people, assuming Elon takes over it, that have admittedly not been very socially capable, have no real education mm. in the liberal arts, have maybe admitted to not being very socially adept. Like, there's a huge difference between the engineering challenge involved in managing a social network than building car batteries and rockets to Mars. Like, that's just like a totally different. So, I have to, as I usually do, make a plug for liberal arts and humanities and getting more people involved in leadership positions in tech that don't come from engineering. A lot of the leaders I follow inside of Twitter that have been um, like some of their, some of the design managers or VPs are very like socially oriented with how they handle things both in the company and are aware of its impact socially from things like the sort of like Arab Spring and the the uprising in 2011 to its role in other political events. And they take that seriously. So to then kind of reverse course and now we're talking about someone who, again, has absolutely no background. I think we have to start talking more about like What sort of credentials should you expect from somebody in a leadership position on a social platform? Because it seems like we judge them the same way as any other tech company. I think it's a completely different situation. And it's unfortunate we don't get to see somebody who's got maybe, you know, a PhD in anthropology or sociology at the helm of one of these companies. So, so to be clear, it's different because of its potential to impact real people, like overthrowing governments and... Sure. And it- yeah. And not just not just impact, it's different because what's happening on these platforms is fundamentally people interacting right. socially. 
And if you don't have a basic understanding of what happens when people interact socially and what people's motivations are and what consequences are and what reactions to consequences can be, you are not going to make the right product decisions. You're not going to be thinking about feature additions or product additions in the way that an anthropologist or somebody You can't scale human behavior the way you can scale battery factories. Like it just doesn't work the same way. Right. And the whole like concept of scale in Silicon Valley really has challenges when it comes to humans because humans are biological. Like we'd actually can't evolve out of the things that we've had like in a year. Like it takes eons to do that. So you can't have somebody who's only maybe read the book Sapiens as their background on human biology, go run a company that is building technology that can scale the best and worst of humanity at that scale. We are not designed to be able to even understand the ramifications of saying something and have millions of here. Like we're a collaborative species, but we're talking about like small groups of like 15 or 20 groups that we're used to working with. And this technology is fundamentally unnatural. And I'm not making a case that we shouldn't have social networks. It's just we need somebody who's got a more detailed, like nuanced understanding of human behavior, like at the helm to understand those types of scale. Then we need somebody who knows how to scale something on an engineering side. Mm. Yeah, we definitely don't need a lizard person in a skin suit. That's for sure. We never need that. Do don't don't. I see you, Erica. You will not cut that out. No, that must stay. Hurry, okay, Megan. Say something really maybe, valuable right now, yeah. so Eric won't. Erica won't edit yeah. it out. Oh man. No, you should keep that. I didn't say which one right. it was. You didn't. Spoiler alert! It's both. No, I'm kidding. Um, well, yeah. Real talk, though. Have you seen? Um, Elon Musk's first wife, Justine's TED Talk. I, I came across it recently. She gave it in 2017, I think, but it's resurfacing on like YouTube and elsewhere with Elon in the news. And to this point of like, it's really hard to scale a product like Twitter when you're coming at it with this very like specific engineering perspective. Because Justine said like for years, even when he became CEO of Tesla and began scaling that company, he would always identify himself as an engineer first. Like that's always kind of been the hat he's preferred to wear. Uh, she describes him as, you know, somebody who was really one of the first to, I don't, I don't agree with this, but as somebody who crossed the lines, right? Like he's an engineer in a suit, right? And even then, if he was the person, if an engineer in a suit was the person to scale the company, he kind of does deserve to lead it. But that means that he should also, depending on what that company is, He should be hiring people that know more about those things than he does. So even if, you know, Zuckerberg or Musk remain the CEO of Facebook and Twitter, they should still be surrounding themselves with people who know more about human behavior than they do. Because that's where, again, it's going to tie back to the topic today, is where ego in product can get in the way of building the right thing versus actually be helpful when building the right thing. Yeah, I think that, yeah, I mean, you're you're totally right. I think that there's, when I talk about this with my wife, I I say that I do respect the hell out of Elon Musk. I think what he's done with Tesla, what he, what he did at, you know, even PayPal back in the day, what he's done at Tesla, what he's done with, with SpaceX, all of his initiatives, trying to get the the loop running, like all of this stuff is amazing. And then the way that he has re- responded to humanitarian crisis, like with the earthquakes in Puerto Rico and then with Ukraine, like he is there, but it's around tech, it's around technology. 
And I think there's a huge danger when like the, the not just the media, but even the people that I follow in my Twitter feed, investors or just people that are in tech, when they start to incorrectly, in my opinion, sort of elevate his status as this sort of just like almost godlike status in the Midas touch on everything. And, and there's just something so fundamentally different about Twitter or any of the social platforms and anything he's ever done. And there's just not enough people talking about, hey, why are we giving him a pass for not having any of these sort of credentials? And shouldn't we expect a little bit more from somebody in that in that role? So I guess I would just say that I still respect him. I think he's uh, amazing and the world is truly better off with his impact. But I do feel like there's an acknowledgement that we have to look at like what someone's role should be in, in, a, in a product company. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's a lot of it's about like knowing yourself, but I guess not knowing yourself too much. Right. Because that's where, you know, ego, like you said, really well gets in the way of product. Um, and, you know, we cover this topic in the product skills conversation about what you need to do personally uh, to succeed in a product career. And, when we talked about ego, then we talked about how it gets in the way of two big things. Number one, it's really hard to actually hear your audience, right? Because you think even if you've been there before, like you absolutely know what's right and you might miss, therefore, some of the nuances. On the flip side, you might even be solving a problem that doesn't even exist. So you have this imagined problem that you're trying to solve with your product, but it's not actually impacting anyone. So those are two big ways that ego in general can affect products. How do leaders manage it though, is my question. Some people might see it as like, okay, I have to take ownership of this thing and be prideful of what I'm doing to innovate. So how do you make that balance of standing up, taking ownership of a product's direction, but keeping your ego in check at the same time? Yeah, I think that when, we, when I was writing about this recently, I was talking about we crash, which I, I really procrastinated watching that because I'd already seen the documentary on WeWork and I was like, yeah, whatever. I don't want another like scandal show. It's just like, there's so much, but I ended up watching it. It's really well done. I thought, um, and I was thinking as I was watching that, what I liked about we crash was you sort of follow the journey as they're founding the company. And you realize in the early stages of a company, the ego, the charisma, the way you get followers is like the only way you can get people to buy into a vision that pretty much only you can see. Even when I joined our CEO of Innovate, uh, a CEO of Innovate Map, Mike Reynolds, and we were co-founding Innovate Map, I didn't see what he saw for a couple years. I saw something different, but I believed in him. And then eventually, I saw what he saw, and then now I sort of am tasked with helping, uh, you know, push that vision as well. But that's the same thing that plays out with startups in those early stages. These visionaries are the only ones that can see this future and they're brave or bold or stupid enough to believe that they could change it. That's amazing for a really long time. And you have to have that because in the early stages, you may be the only person who can see it. But to answer your question, I think you have to balance it with people that are trusted that will challenge you. And I think when we see people go astray, like we see um, in the We Crash uh, show, there's got to be a counterbalance to what you're doing. Like, for example, I don't think my wife would ever allow that to happen. She's so pragmatic and will always be honest about decisions I make. Or you might have a co-founder who checks your balance the way that Steve Jobs might have had, you know, off and on throughout the years. And I think Elon's had that in his circle with a lot of the things that he's done. And so I think that you have, you can be the visionary, but you actually do have to create almost like Abraham Lincoln's, like the cabinet of rivals or whatever, when he created his first cabinet full of the people that 
you know, ran against him, he understood how important it was to have the dissenting opinion uh, to keep you in check. Mm, that's great. Yeah. That's why I have Megan here, because anytime I get too <laughs> full of myself, Megan will knock me down. And vice versa. It really helps that we both have huge egos. I right. Think. <laughs> and we're highly critical of each other. So those two combined yeah. <laughs> keep us from taking over the world in an evil plot. The perfect combo. But I think it's important to say, like, we're, I know we're talking about ego and product, and that sounds negative, but I don't know if you have to have it, but it almost goes hand in hand with the belief that you have in the early stages of building a product. Um, because to create the most innovative products or even create a new way of doing things, a lot of people won't see it. And you can talk about the innovation curve and the, the early adopters and the laggards, however you want to talk about it. We see this play out all the time where most people aren't going to see what you're doing. Now, imagine having to rally people around your vision. What would you need to do that? Well, you've got to be pretty charismatic and you probably have to have an inflated belief in your abilities to even have success. So you take all that together. It's really hard not to become you know, egotistical about it. And I think there's a lot yeah. of value in that when you're in the early stages of product and your charisma is probably the thing that gets you investment in the beginning more than the product itself. This is going to sound like a joke, but it's not. It's like all of the traits that a cult leader would need but applied in a more positive direction. So it's the charisma, it's the unfailing belief in one wild thing. And it's, you have to absolutely have a little bit of ego to sell an idea that's a new idea or an unusual idea, because if you don't believe in it, nobody else is going to. And if you're not vocal about believing it, nobody's going to know that you do. And they're not going to know the reasons why that you do. And that's like, Something that I think a lot of the most charismatic leaders, good and bad, um, business, politics, cults, whatever, have realized over the years. Well, and a lot of that's, this is great, by the way, a lot of that's, all of that actually is external, right? Like what people, as you're building this product vision, are going to see. I'd like to focus internally too. So, I mean, Megan, I think of you first here, especially around like our product marketing fundamentals, like when your setting, your positioning statement, your North Star for your company, that's that's around that's something around which everything else is, needs to be aligned or else it's going to be a chaotic mess, right? So what does applying ego in a positive way look like around those foundations you have to create inside your company? Yeah, that's a great question. One of the keys to effective positioning that we always talk about is that it should be repetitive. And so as like, if the leader starts by repeating it, it should kind of have a ripple effect so that everybody else repeats it almost as like a mantra. But the other thing that we always say is that positioning statements, foundational statements for any company should be true. And we use the word true very intentionally. We don't say accurate. We don't say like technically true or specific, anything like that, but they should be true because yes, they do need to be accurate. They need to correctly describe what your company does, who you serve, and the value that you deliver. But it also needs to feel true. There's a little bit of subjectivity there in that like everybody who works for the company or who is tasked with moving that company forward needs to believe in what you're doing. They need to believe in the North Star, which is that foundational statement. And that's where like truth kind of means both accuracy as well as something a little bit more emotional, which is a lot of what ego, I think, helps move forward. Yeah. You can have a truth, but you need to be able to accept it too. 
Like, like, is that, I think for me, that's where the emotion comes in. Like there are bitter truths that I think we can accept if there's the right emotional pool. Right. But yeah, that's not quite what I mean. It, it's more like, um, it, truth doesn't, it doesn't just exist. Like you have to believe yeah. in it. It's like, like the Tinkerbell example, yeah. right? Like she existed, but she didn't truly exist unless people believed exactly. in her. A company's foundational statement is kind of like a Tinkerbell or yes, it's, it's true as long as it's accurate, but it's not actually true that you are this company that has this differentiator that serves this market unless people believe that you are and pay you to be. And also like the founder or the charismatic leader, whoever has the ego is the one asking everybody to do that. They're giving them the pixie dust, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 No, I think that's that's well said. When we talk about brands for the early stage companies, like it has to feel natural to the founder because the early stage is like the founder's personality and the brand are kind of like tied together. And so is the the vision and, and all that. But at some point it has to become real and the in the We Crash documentary, I think they kept saying we're trying to elevate the world's consciousness, which it just sounds so cringy on the outside, but the people inside really believed it. The only thing that is wrong with that is if you can't really back it up, you know, over time, because at some point that internal mantra right. has to be delivered upon in, in some way. And that's that's where some companies can go astray. The one thing that I think too, as you grow, I guess, as a product org and you sort of, you, if you get people rallied around, and I know we've talked about this pre-show, Erica, getting back to Elon and sort of what I think is wrong with some of the stuff he's done specifically, like talking about polls for features, like on Twitter, I thought, how much would it suck to be on the product team and, and, and work so hard only to have this happen? somebody coming in and mm. just start dictating. That's where it can go wrong in my opinion too, because everything Megan you're saying is like, you're saying these things, you repeat these things, you get people to rally behind you and that's strong, but you have to be careful not to then turn that power and then push back and dictate all of those things back on people as you mature. In the early stages, you may have mm -hmm. a vision that's driving what you wanna see come to, to life in the market, but Twitter is not brand new. There's there's people working on these features. There's thoughts and rationale that goes behind it. And it's a really crappy position to be on the product team and to have that same ego turn inward as an authoritative voice on product roadmap or features when it ignores all of the process that you have. And I think that that's what I found problematic. For sure. Like you said, years, a legacy of what these people know. They actually probably definitely know more about the workings of the product than he does. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I've actually seen stories about that too. A lot of them like hinge political, like they just don't like his values and personality. But I, I saw some articles like that too, of text messages exchanged between employees that they shared with the press, just like not feeling like he gets what they're about and what their vision is for their company. And that's, that's a big part and I of think this. That's the, yeah. And I think that's the most we talk about our listeners, like what, what to take away from this. I mean, I think, I know there's always going to be people who want to cancel people for every sort of reason. And I'm not even going there. It's more, it's more about the process of building product. And it's, it is a really tough balance that in the early stages, if you're a founder, you've got to be charismatic to get people to follow you into the really uncertain, angst ridden unknown. But then you have to be careful that as you grow your team and grow your product, you don't, I guess maybe take advantage of that power and sort of dictate things in the long run that you actually let the product team, you know, create the best version of your vision and let them go. And I think this was just a public case where just, you know, 
we don't see this happen very often where there's going to be like a takeover of a tech company like this. So it's been an interesting use case to show why this is bad behavior. And even though it's public like this, I do think this happens in small pockets on smaller teams where, you know, CEO may come and dictate things that should happen. And that's that you have to be very careful if you're building a strong product process that listens to users and is, is rooted in, 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 in innovative processes. You can't, uh, steamroll that with with the same ego that got those people to follow you in the first place. At some point, you have to sort of like, you know, cut the string and sort of let people become autonomous and just trust that they will mm-hmm. sort of, you know, bring your vision to life in the best way possible. Trust matters 100%. Yeah. Um, so great. Yeah, this has been an excellent conversation. And actually, I'm surprised we didn't get, I don't know, a little more heated about it. But hey, this is a uh, hopefully a positive contribution to some pretty impactful and global news, really. I mean, Twitter is a global platform that's going to affect a lot of people and is affecting a lot of people. So whatever happens here is definitely something to keep watching and talking about. So thank you both for doing this with me. And to our listeners, as always, thank you for joining us for another week. If you're not on Slack yet, we are still there waiting, listening, sharing, and having all the product conversations like this and more. um, And we want you part of it. So join us if you can visit betterproduct.community and we'll see you next week. Thanks for joining us. And if you haven't yet, be sure to join the Better Product Community. We've got all sorts of content and resources for you. And if you want more audio, don't forget the Business of Product is our latest show to join the Better Product Network. And you can find that and more at betterproduct.community.